0: Open your Bibles with me to the epistle of 1 Peter. We'll be reading the first chapter of 1 Peter up to verse 12. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thus, further the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this opportunity to dig into your word, have an opportunity to uh, see that which the prophets foretold, foretold, and that which the angels are fascinated to see at work in the world today. We pray, Father, you would stir up our hearts. Uh, that we might receive your word with much gladness, that we might go out changed because of it. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll recall that as opportunity has arisen, we've been slowly working our way through the epistle of 1 Peter. And so today we get to the end of a really long sentence. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 is one long sentence in the Greek. And we've, I think this will be our fifth sermon, uh, unpacking mostly that material. But I just want to remind you where we've been. Uh, When verse 10 says, this salvation, concerning this salvation, that uh, this salvation reference points back to verse 9. The salvation of our souls, which is the result of your faith. And we've seen the benefits of this salvation in previous sermons. And so I've summarized this in four theses that we've looked at in previous sermons. And we'll just run through those really quick. When we first got together, we looked at Genesis 11 and we noted how there is a pattern of uh, place and movement, right? That a unholy people is kicked out of a holy place and they move away from the presence of God, right? We look from Tower of Babel to Israel being exiled And we notice that being scattered from a holy place was part and parcel with being covenant breakers and breaking the curse or bearing the curse. The apostle Peter, however, in this letter in verses one and two of chapter one, he turns that pattern on its head. Peter says that because of the work of Christ, we're scattered about in the world as pilgrims, but we are blessed. We take the gospel to the four corners of the earth to be a blessing to all humanity. With the assurance that Jesus is with us until the end of the age. So being scattered about in creation does not equal being cursed. Peter declares at the end of verse 2 grace and peace be multiplied in the midst of their scattering. The second sermon we looked at, again, 1 Peter verses 1, 1, and 2, we saw that the idea is that being a chosen and purchased pilgrim people is true of the multi tribal, multilingual and multinational Church of Christ. Verses 1 and 2 showed us that all three persons of the Godhead work for our redemption, and they send us out to seek out all God's people so that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be incorporated into this growing kingdom of God, which will have no end. Third sermon, we looked at verses 3 through 5, and we saw that being redeemed gives us a confident expectation of the future. We saw that the biblical hope gives us the confident expectation in a future heavenly inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Heaven's your home. Your citizenship is there. God is your God, and you are his people. And lastly, we saw that God will glorify you, but that you must participate in the life of Christ by suffering first and experiencing glory later. This was verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1. We saw that our sufferings and our trials prove the genuineness of our faith, And purifies our faiths from all the garbage that we add to it However, the end is seeing him as he is and rejoicing in his presence as we are glorified So our current sufferings are not comparable to the glory to be revealed Today we're going to look at how the Old Testament prophets and holy angels were and are intensely attentive To this unfolding plan of God's redemption and its application to sinners in the here and now So as we look at verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10 and following, it's useful to look at this from the lens of uh, how does the Apostle appeal to Scripture to show forth this unfolding one covenant of grace in both the Old and New Testaments? How does the Apostle appeal to Scripture to show this unfolding of the one covenant of grace? This is quoting from a pastor named Peter Sim. Peter says, Look at how the apostle appeals to the Old Testament to explain that the prophets had great interest in knowing when the Messiah would come to accomplish your salvation. He says in verse 10, They made careful searches and inquiries concerning this. They inquired diligently as to the time that all this was going to happen. They were intensely interested wanting to know when Christ would come to fulfill all these things they'd been speaking about. When Peter says they made careful searches, he means to say that they were consumed with knowing more, knowing when the Messiah was finally going to fulfill all that they had prophesied about. End of quote. But consider this. The Old Testament prophets in the heights of glory as they're prophesying of the future sufferings of Christ and the glory to come for them, they would never see that. For the Old Testament prophets, it was not to be. God did not reveal himself to them as he had to the readers of this epistle of First Peter. God saw fit for these Old Testament prophets to only see in part. It's for this reason that Jesus says in Luke 10, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but to not hear it. Jesus would say concerning John the Baptist in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The point is that the prophets of the Old Testament, as much as they wanted to see when all of this would happen, they never got to see it fulfilled in their lifetime. Perhaps one more example. Think of Simeon, right? Uh, The Old Testament prophets are largely like Simeon. These are people who eagerly wait to see God's salvation, anticipating the time when they could say, just like Simeon did, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But consider that. Even Simeon only saw the beginning of it. Even with a mere viewing of the babe Christ, just witnessing the reality of the incarnation of which Isaiah spoke, Simeon is content to die. Behold the wondrous glories that the prophets John the Baptist and Simeon beheld. But the readers of First Peter and beloved you with them, you behold something far greater. Although you have not seen Christ like Simeon, nor touched him as Simeon did, Indeed, we have a greater blessing. Consider it. The original readers of this letter are the recipients of the salvation to which the prophets prophesied. We possess the same historical vantage point as those readers. First century readers of the epistle of First Peter. They live after the resurrection and ascension and session of the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And before the second coming of the Lord Jesus in glory. We share the same historical vantage point. We're recipients of the salvation to which the prophets pointed. We participate equally in the benefits of Christ that these scattered saints in the first century experienced. And so because of that, we can say we participate in heavenly benefits now. We have tasted of the salvation that the prophets prophesied of. We've become partakers of Christ, as Hebrews 3 says. And we look back on all that Christ has done for us with much specificity. Even though we've never seen Christ nor known him, this is true of us. So we, along with these scattered churches in the first century, are not an afterthought. We are not a plan B. Okay, The way in which the scripture is unpacked here is Peter saying, those Old Testament prophets were speaking to you in this congregation as you read God's word. We're in the same historical vantage point. This is not a plan B. We are the purchased prize of Jesus Christ along with all of God's saints in all ages. As we look at verse 11, I want you to notice how Peter calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Now, that's a a strange way of putting it. Generally in Scripture, when we talk about the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the way that Scripture chooses to... uh, identify him. But Peter says the spirit of Christ. Why? Well it's in order to bring into focus the fact that the spirit who was working in the past in the prophets moving them along as the Holy Spirit gave them inspiration right? Peter's going ahead and saying that is the spirit of Christ and of course we see that in verse 12 it talks about the Holy Spirit again. It's sandwiching the Holy Spirit back in the prophets and the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel to you today with the Spirit of Christ showing that it's preaching the same person. It is Christ being preached in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. In other words, the content of what was being foretold in the past is of the same substance that is now being preached to you with the gospel in the presence, in the present. What this means is the gospel of Jesus Christ is there in the Old Testament. It's the substance of what the prophets were prophesying. If anyone tells you that the Old Testament does not direct you to Christ, that's just not true. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 is very explicit. Right here we're told the prophets direct us to the gospel. And you can't talk about the gospel without talking about Jesus. Now, note that the Spirit of Christ did not only testify that Christ would come, but he spoke in detail about the saving work of Christ, Christ's suffering and glories to follow. Now, think about this. During the Old Testament time, it was common to have an expectation of glory. We could look at a few passages. Isaiah is often appealed to in Peter, so we'll start with Isaiah. Isaiah 9, you guys are familiar with this from all our Christmas liturgy, right? Isaiah 9, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Or Malachi 4.2, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Or maybe even think about the apostles in Acts 1-6 after the resurrection. The apostles say to Jesus, uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This expectation of a future and glorious kingdom is universal and it's biblical. With such faithful prophetic witness throughout Scripture, people had become accustomed to the promises of these great glories to come. Add to that the possibility, probability perhaps, of selective hearing that we often accuse our spouses and children of, uh, sometimes, and we see this in the Pharisees and even in the apostles, we see that people have a hard time conceiving of a Messiah that needs to suffer. It didn't make sense that the Christ should undergo trials. The Messiah is supposed to be the, the king that's greater than David. Shouldn't we be concerned about crushing skulls? Some apostles tried that, right? Striking off ears, etc. in the garden. Well, the assumption is whoever this Messiah character is, he's supposed to be vanquishing his enemies. Even Peter himself will remember when hearing Jesus say that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and rise from the dead, Peter immediately goes, may it never be, Lord. This isn't, that's not part of your story. I've been uh, consulting uh, uh, the pollsters, et cetera, and that doesn't poll well. We can't do that. Um, Well, he says, far be it, Lord, from you. This shall never happen to you. And, of course, Jesus turns around and he says, get behind me, Satan. What people fail to recognize was that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer in a state of humiliation in order to purchase the glories for a people to call his own. It's not as though, however, that the prophets of old didn't foretell of his sufferings. Of course, Peter tells us as much in verse 10 and 11. But through our selectivity, we often struggle with this idea. And we probably struggle with it because if Jesus has to suffer, as this passage will teach us, so do we. And we don't want anything to that. And we often don't want anything to do with a suffering Savior. But there's no salvation outside of such a savior. But it's not as though these prophets of old didn't foretell these sufferings. Isaiah 52 and 53 are very instructive. For the sake of time, I'll quote uh, chapter 53, verses four through six. This will be very familiar to you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we're healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a glorious preview this must have been, and certainly there's much more within the prophetic corpus. What meat this must have added to the prophets' bones of conception of what the Messiah must be like. But keep in mind that for these prophets, it remained just that. It was a preview. It was a thumbnail sketch. It was glorious, yes, but just a preview, a shadow, not the reality. It's as if these Old Testament prophets had seen a movie preview, Perhaps they know the actors, they saw a couple action scenes, but the fact of the matter, it's a preview. The movie is still in production, uh, and they only saw a one-minute preview of a two-minute movie. It needs to be said that these prophets in our passage, it makes very clear that they applied themselves. It's as though these prophets were waiting in a long line before the movie with 15 bucks in hand, ready to get in there and see it. But alas, Hebrews 11.40 says, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Imagine for a moment the awe and wonder uh, that Isaiah experienced as a theologian the suffering servant is going to have our iniquities placed upon him the suffering servant is going to take our sins upon himself he will bear our sins what manner of sacrifice is this I'm Isaiah I understand the sacrificial system I know that it's a blood of bulls and goats and sheep that are going to take my sins, but this is a man. And it's not just a man, it's the Messiah. What manner of man is this? The sort of pondering that had to go through the minds of the prophets. Now we, of course, as post-resurrection believers with a completed New Testament, we know that with the original readers of this epistle, we can answer exactly what sort of sacrifice this was. It was on a Friday afternoon that the God-man reached the climax of his career of condescension, what our catechism calls uh, his, uh, we'll skip that. Yeah, his state of humiliation, right? State of humiliation, right? It's his climax of this career of condescension. It's his state of humiliation. And it's there on the cross that a transaction is made. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Because Jesus took our sins upon himself, God turned his back on Christ, as it were. It's there that Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While on the cross, we know that God unleashed his divine wrath upon Christ. Pouring out the fury of his anger as he will to all who do not humbly confess Christ as Lord on the last day. But note what it says in our text. It says there's a plural to glories. It says the glories that would follow or the subsequent glories. And this, of course, refers to his state of glorification, right? When Peter says glories, it's expansive. It includes Christ's exaltation, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement in heaven, his session at the right hand of the Father on your behalf, and his returning glory to glorify a people who will enjoy him forever. So these ideas, when we look at Peter, Peter introduces these ideas of Christ's suffering and glory here as a paradigm for the Christian life that runs through the whole book of 1 Peter. Peter. And I want you to note that it was not only the Old Testament prophets who were writing for you and interested in what the spirit of Christ was communicating to them concerning the sufferings and glories of Christ. Good verse 12. Angels long to look into the application of redemption to God's people. So get that, both the visible and invisible realms are carefully marveling what God has done. What God has done by going out of his way to make you more like Christ in your sufferings and glory. Think about that. The prophets of the old covenant are eagerly looking into what the spirit in Christ is intimating within them. And they even know that in some sense, yes, certainly they're writing to the original audience. But there's also a sense where there's something that goes beyond that. They're speaking of something that that book has not been opened to them yet but they faithfully write, but they faithfully wonder. Not only is it those prophets, but it's also the invisible world. Angels are carefully marveling to see how God is working today. The wonder of the gospel. Not only do we have a great advantage over the Old Testament prophets, we even have an advantage over the angels. Consider it. Man created a little lower than the angels, nonetheless, is envied by these holy beings. They remove their eyes from Christ, as it were, to peer into the workings of God in the hearts of his people. The Scripture says that the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Why is that? Because they're looking. Because they're wondering at the glories of God, that he would make this eternal plan of his unfold in time and space history, saving men and women, boys and girls, for a kingdom of his own. That he will glorify them. That he will make them co-heirs with Christ. They're fascinated at this. Believer, stand in awe of what manner of salvation God has brought upon you. The salvation of which the prophets longed after. And which the angels even now long to look into. It's kind of interesting. The word there used is epithumia. The pastor refers to it a lot. It's used for lust. Strong desire it could be a good or a bad desire. These angels have this strong desire to look into what is the business that my creating God is doing. What a glorious creator and good God. Now for us as humans, what a glorious Savior. Hallelujah, Beloved, when reading the Old Testament, we must remember that it's about Christ and that it's for us. If we fail to see that the Old Testament is about Christ written to us and for us, we will prove what was spoken by the Savior, although he hid himself. We'll prove what was said by the Savior in the Gospel of Luke when they were walking on the road to Emmaus. How foolish we are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? I know that was short, and some of you think it's sweet, but as we close today, I want you to notice what Peter has done for a people engaged in real sufferings and real doubts. And it's useful in your quiet time when you think about First Peter. This is kind of like Hebrews, right? Hebrews is a book where, in this case, Hebrews are second generation believers and they're struggling with going back to the ways of the old covenant. All this stuff promised about Jesus, is it true? Is it good? Can I hang my hat on it? First Peter talks about those kinds of sufferings, those real day-in, day-out, life-sucks realities, right? Notice what Peter has done for people like us. He's made a sandwich. He has two pieces of bread. He's got the prophets of old and the, sa- the angels of now, right? And in between those sanctified beings, and we might say, oh, that's great. Angels aren't fallen, at least not these ones that he's referring to. Oh, and prophets, they had the benefit of the Holy Spirit illuminating them. Gee, that's not me. It is Peter is in the center of that sandwich. Peter is in between. He is uh, not a prophet of the Old Testament. He's not an angel, but he is a New Testament apostle. In between these sanctified beings of the Old and New Covenant, Old Covenant and the angelic realm, is the Apostle Peter himself, in the midst of his suffering. Marveling at the love of God with the saints and angels of all time, Peter has demarcated a past, a present, and a future intense yearning to study God's Word and its workings for the salvation of his elect. Peter is stoked on this. Peter believes, and you have access to this too that this is totally sufficient to be an anchor for your soul, that you are fed by heaven above. Peter has demarcated the past, present, and future. And he has, along with the prophets of old and the angels of now, an intense yearning to study God's word and look at its workings for the salvation of his elect. So the question is, how is it for you? Do you marvel at the sufferings and glories of the Son of Man for you? All that Peter tells these scattered saints in Asia Minor, it's true for you. Search carefully and inquire into it. Long to look into it as the angels long to look in the application of redemption. And beloved, believe this. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that you condescend to us to speak our language, to speak to us in our sufferings, in our difficulty. You show us, Father, that there's a way. You promise that uh, our suffering has meaning. You promise that saints and angels of old and now have tried and found you to be true. So, Father, we pray that you would make that true to us here today through the preaching of your word. And uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.